Happy New Year and welcome to episode 18 of Herpetological Highlights. This episode is going to be focused squarely on chameleons, but not just any chameleons, chameleons which are smaller than what you might expect. Some would say tiny. Tiny, yes. But then, I don't know, are they tiny or are they just small? Because um, I hear they're just very far away. If you eat a chameleon that's small, you're not mamecophagus, are you? No, that would be... Mamecophagus is, is termites and ants. It'd be microphagus. Microphagus. If, if everything was bigger, like much bigger, and chameleons were the ants of the world, then it would be. Yeah, but the point I'm making is that's not the status quo that we exist no. in. So therefore, they're not tiny. They're just small. Yeah. Hey, who are you? <laughs> My name's Tom Major, and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall. Nice. That's you. That's me. Yeah. So... Uh, Tiny chameleons. Yeah. Dwarf chameleons, Tiny cha- even. Yeah, dwarf chameleons, leaf chameleons. They go by many names. They're small and they look like leaves, and that's why they're called those things. And they live in amongst the leaves. Yes, some do. Yes, many do. They live amongst the leaves and moss. They're kind of uh, more modest than most chameleons. <laughs> modest chameleons. <laughs> but they're also... Um, yeah. Well, should we get on to the first paper? Yes. Should we introduce it and then we can babble on some more about small chameleons and at least then it's in some kind of frame. Okay, so the first one is Miller C. 2017. Morphological and roosting variation in the dwarf chameleon Brachysia stumpfi between primary, secondary and degraded habitats in Nosy B, Madagascar. Herpetological conservation and biology. Uh, this cool. This is a cool journal. We like Herpcom Bio, don't we? We because, do. Um, the abbreviation of it is fun to say. That's the primary reason. Herpcom Bio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but more than that, even is that um, it's super open access and free, and it's great. And they have some good papers in there, man. Some yeah, really they good do. Papers with a nice con- conservation twist to them, usually. Yeah, well, this one certainly does, and I thought this one's really cool, um, and the fact that. Uh, from what I could tell, Christina Miller was a volunteer somewhere with uh, Frontier, and she got this really cool paper out out of it. It's awesome. Mm. So uh, yeah, Brachysia is the genus that we're looking at here. They're the um, Madagascan endemic dwarf chameleons. So Brachysia is a genus that is only found on Madagascar. There's like 30 species. Um, Madagascar, although it's a huge hotbed for chameleon biodiversity only has three genuses of chameleon three genera should say it's not a word genuses Genuses. Uh, if you say it enough it will become a word it actually sounds better than genera though doesn't it Mm, genuses no you wouldn't say okay i won't get into this but yeah (laughs) first for the other two are first for and kaluma and uh they're much bigger than brachysia so brachysia are like the tiny Dwarf versions of chameleons that live on Madagascar, named, known as leaf chameleons, named after Joshua Brooks. Oh, really? Yes, a British atomist, atomist, and naturalist. Ah, okay, cool. Um, yeah, the other thing that's different about these chameleons is they're filthy ground dwellers, whereas Columba and Versifer live in the trees. Uh, Brachysia lack either the coordination, the desire, or the wherewithal for a life in the trees. <laughs> Oh, so they... they might. You don't know. Maybe they just haven't been found yet. Maybe there's actually a really adept arboreal species, but they're so high up and so tiny, no one can see them. Yeah, maybe it's possible, but I just I doubt it. They um, what's cool about them though? I mean, they look quite cool. They're they're like miniature versions of ordinary chameleons. Um, and they also have really small distribution ranges. Um, half of the species that have been discovered, half of those 30 species, are actually known only from single localities. Mm. It's just microendism um, endonism again, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, because they're so small, they end up being really simple morphologically. So they're quite hard to tell apart because when you make a face super tiny, the, dif- the definition of the features <laughs> disappears. <laughs> If you imagine trying to draw a really small face, you'd just have a very simple one, wouldn't you? And I think that's the case for these chameleons. Yeah, that's you, what's ca- you can't there. fit in any detail because they're so little. <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly what's happened. Um, <laughs> so 
with these Brachysia stumpfi, their common name is the plated leaf chameleon. Um, I'm pretty easy. We can call them either. Which of you prefer? I can see why they're called the plated leaf chameleon. They've got plates all down the back. They look quite quite cool. They're like little mini dragons. I quite like plated leaf chameleon because I yeah. think it's quite a fitting name for them. Kind of leafy, but kind of armoured. All brown with a nice dorsal uh, stripe. Darker dorsal stripe. Yeah. yeah, and they've got little white bellies. They've got the classic counter shading going on. Mm. And I also like their um, head ornamentation. The little crest above the eyes and the tiny horn. They've got two teeny tiny little rostral appendages. Which we'll probably look, look like little come back to discuss in greater detail in paper number two, though. Yes, we will. You're quite right. Yep, we mustn't jump the gun. So, uh, yeah, like we said, this paper is open access, and the idea of it was to look at whether or not these Brachysia stumpfi, the plated leaf chameleons, were behaving differently or actually physically becoming different in primary, secondary, or degraded forest. Mm. This was... Did you did you check out that... Uh, how do you pronounce his name? Lossos, I guess? Paper? The 1997 Nature paper? No. Ah, with a Nolis or a Noli lizards. Ah, this is the one with the, the the lizards changing. Yeah, so they basically dumped a bunch of lizards on a bunch of islands with different vegetation uh, structures. And the different islands have different morphological sort of adaptations depending on the vegetation. They're all sort of within the grand diversity of the the original population, but they're all shifted in different ways. And how long did that take? Like, was it 10 years? Or something? I think it took 10 to 14 years. I think 10 to, 10 to 14 is what I have in my head as well. But I, I'm, I'm sure it is 10 to 14 years. Does it say in the paper? Are you looking at it? Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm looking in the in the losses paper and I can't. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. They basically just adapted using the using the existing kind of genetic variation within the populations. And they've just in that short space of a time, which can only be a few generations for animals, right? They've they've managed to adapt to the environments in which they were put. Yeah. And there's there's another really cool case of it with snakes, too. It's not just lizards that can do it, but snakes. Snakes? Yeah, there's an Albrecht paper in 2004, again in Nature, that's showing tiger snakes um, diverging on, a, on an island where they eat, uh, what is it, silver gulls, I believe? Yeah, silver gull chicks, which are bigger than what they eat on the mainland. So the ones on the island are not just... They have bigger mouths, and they managed to work out that it wasn't just plasticity, but actual selection. So they basically took a bunch of the snakes off the island and raised them in captivity against a whole bunch from the mainland. And they had a. They were more plastic, but they were also innately uh, predisposed to having larger mouths anyway. So it was Is this a, the same population of tiger snakes that are mostly blind? I don't know. Uh. What's the island called? What's the island? The island is... Where's study site in this thing? It's a nature communication... So it's... Oh, uh... Karnak Island. Yeah, those are the same ones. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So not only have they... They're just making do whilst blind. Because they're often... Like, a ridiculously high proportion of them are blinded in when they're in sort of their sub-adult stage because they're... They're eating birds and uh, they just get their eyes pecked out and they're just getting by blind because the seabird abundance is so high that they can just eat all these chicks and they don't need to see. Then they can even mate and everything else successfully uh, because they're even though they're blind. It's pretty phenomenal. And they have bigger mouths. Bigger mouths. Through plasticity and genetic differences, which is very neat. Can you imagine the frustration of being one of those gulls? You think, oh, I've pecked the stupid thing's eyes out now. I'll probably leave my babies alone. <laughs> and, and it just carries on. It just carries on. There's just nothing you can do. Well, that's, that's all I've got. tiger snake. Oh, oh look, here comes, here comes some more. Some tiny little ones. So, and these ones have bigger interestingly, mouths now. It's thought that that population of tiger snakes isn't actually there naturally. They were introduced um, 
basically this guy um, this is a hazy recollection but what from what i recall a man had like 80 tiger snakes as pets like because one tiger snake's not enough i think he was a showman and um <laughs> what was he, his show a tiger snake disaster <laughs> they, his show was just like tiger snakes coming out the wall <laughs> i don't know what the show would be but yeah he basically had all these snakes and then one of them i think it bit and killed his wife um and he was like you know after that he's he's bit down on the tiger snake thing so uh he just boated them all to this island and let them go on this karnak island and since then they've set up a population there so technically they're actually an invasive species on that island but um as far as i can tell they're not having any kind of negative effects i think the, the main gull there you said it was the silver gull i feel like that's the australian equivalent of the herring gull it just like eats rubbish and stuff so they're just they're doing really well the silver gull well is that, is that what you concern. said so yeah that's something yeah but yeah that's cool those tiger snakes uh how have we managed to get on snakes ben we're supposed to be doing an episode on chameleons yeah well i just i derailed us with with an <laughs> interesting sideline <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah back to the chameleons at hand um yeah so the way yeah so um Christina's idea in this paper was to look to see whether or not they were different, the chameleons, physically in primary, secondary or degraded. So this is like primary untouched forest uh, in Madagascar. Whereabouts in Madagascar are we? Nosy B. Nosy B, so little island. Um, primary untouched rainforest, secondary regrowth where kind of the big trees have been logged out and it might have been heavily disturbed, but then it's grown back. Or degraded forest where... There's not really much forest left. It's a bit knackered. There's, you know, the big trees are gone. It's quite shrubby and it's just a bit naff. Those are the three kind of options of habitat mm. that these chameleons have got. And the sort of expectations well, is they're going to have to be using those habitats or adapting in different ways to make use of the different uh, vegetation structure and or prey assemblages available to them, right? Yeah, precisely, yeah. Because, um, yeah, things like insects assemblages and stuff change when you alter the forest quite often you get lower diversity same sort of numbers of individual insects but you'll have fewer species present because there's some specific niches which are no longer available or you'll get a shift towards the same number of species but more generalist species right ah yeah i suppose that could be the case also yeah so right so they surveyed, they, she had help, they surveyed for chameleons at night um, and they were looking to see where they were roosting, the height they were sitting at above the ground, if they were above the ground. And then they took various measures of their morphology, you know, like snout to vent length, uh, various head dimensions. Um, I thought it was funny to get the um, head measurements. They had to rely on the chameleons feigning death. This was quite which good, is what, this. Yeah, I quite like this as a... Yeah. <laughs> so useful. Because all dangerous wild animals, when picked up, will feign death. So luckily, these <laughs> these chameleons, these teeny tiny little chameleons, because they're only like, what, 10 centimetres long, yeah. including their tail. 100 mil, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when they're picked up, they pretend to be dead, so it makes them very easy to measure. And you don't have to risk knocking them out with some dodgy chemical, which is quite nice. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. However, yeah. it does bias your sample to ones that do death feign. Yeah, there wasn't any um, figures for how many that was, but I get the impression it was the vast majority. I, f I feel like it must have... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing really saying it one way or another. I presume it's the the vast majority death feigned. Because yeah, I've, I've yeah, read other can... things that suggest when they're, when they're threatened, they just stay still and stuff. So Maybe that's why they're called leaf chameleons. They make like a leaf. A yeah. tree. <laughs> Well, oh, something no. like that. That's all backwards. That is backwards. That was very poor. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, but what, are, what? In terms of findings, uh, there was a bit of a difference um, in terms of where the chameleons were roosting. So this is well, we should probably mention chameleons at night. They're pretty much, as far as I know, exclusively diurnal. That goes for all chameleons, I believe. I'd like to be corrected mm, on that. It would make sense uh, because they've got weird eyes. Yes, they got those crazy eyes and they've got insanely good visual acuity, so you'd think they could 
you know, they're not a night owl looking at them, but who knows? Maybe there is one that is. But um, yeah, at night, chameleons, generally speaking, they'll climb to the end of a branch or they'll find a nice little bit of tree or relief and they'll just sit out the evening, the night time. They're like us. They sleep during the night. Uh, often it'll be at the, I mean, for, for arboreal chameleons, they quite often climb to the very end of a branch and just sit there. And that way, if there's like a snake or something coming along the branch, they can just drop to the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what, that makes them quite easy to find at night. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what they did. They just went along from about seven till 10 in the evening and just looked for these chameleons. And like I said, there was a difference in terms of how high they were roosting. So in degraded habitat, they were, well, and secondary habitat too, they were roosting between 34 and 35 centimeters off the ground on average. Whereas in the primary habitat, so this like lush actual forest, they were roosting much lower, around 23 and a half centimetres. Mm. So um, the chameleons were noticeably lower in the pristine habitat. And uh, Christina postulated that this could be because um, in the pristine habitat, there's more canopy cover. And so because there's more canopy cover, there's a better kind of layering of vegetation. So... Yeah, the idea that secondary and degraded forests with the additional light meant that there were fewer smaller saplings for the chameleons to be sitting on. So they had to resort to the slightly larger ones that jumped up their their roosting height, wasn't it? Because that was the other thing. There wasn't a difference in what they were using for roosting. It was pretty much saplings throughout and almost exclusively saplings. No shrubs or in the leaflet or anything else like that. Hmm. Almost exclusively saplings. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? So despite the fact that they have largely evolved for this life on the ground compared to other chameleons, they still go into the trees at night. It's their ancestral nighttime roost. Mm. And they still have their little grippy, fun feet, don't they? Their zygodactyl feet. Zygodactyl feet. Excellent. Yeah. Fused toes, little weirdos. Yeah, so... Um, so that was, that was where they were. The other difference yes. found was what they looked like. Really? Um, yeah, they did look different. Yeah, so... What was the case? We had... Yeah, so the ones in... Go on, you. Yeah, head length and jaw length were smaller in degraded habitats. Um, and the suggestion there is that's, that's a dietary adaptation. Right? Yeah, like we said earlier, it might be that there's more um, soft-bodied prey. So maybe yeah. there's just squidier insects in the um, disturbed habitat, so they don't have to have such potent crushing jaws. And also saying that that would be a nice bit to follow on the research too, is have a look at the dietary stuff alongside the morphological stuff and see if they tally up, which yeah. would be excellent. Yeah. The other difference was that the tail was longer in primary habitats. Mm. Uh, so better rainforest, longer tail. You know, you could, you could say that maybe was due to the fact that the environment was that little bit more complex. So they had to um, have better balance, more more use of the tail, because the tail in chameleons is prehensile. It's like a fifth leg. So um, it would stand to reason that in a more complex environment, you'd have a longer tail. But at the same time, they're not roosting as higher heights. So they're not using... Well, the tail's too heavy to drag all the way up there. Yeah, maybe. It's very heavy. <laughs> and they're actually bigger, too. They're bigger in, in primary, although this wasn't found to be significant. They are, what's that, about three millimetres larger in primary than degraded, and about a millimetre larger than uh, secondary forest. Hmm. So I, it was quite interesting seeing, because there's a... there's a Primary's largest, secondary's second largest, and degraded smallest... And it's not by a significant amount, but I wonder if there is something going on there and whether you could, you would find something if you did this study in a different way, if you did more sophisticated habitat analysis and broke it down within primary, secondary and degraded to actual, um, like, vegetation characteristics instead of just categoric. And whether there's something going on there between a certain aspect of uh, that habitat and SVL or tail length or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. It, you'd think that, that, you know, there must be a reason for these changes. Yeah. And if you get enough if you get enough information, eventually you'd, you'd probably work out what it was. Unless it's something to do with, I don't know, predation or something completely outside of habitat um, or habitat characteristics, like I'm saying, and actually the categorization is yeah. the best way of doing it because you just have X type of predator in 
degraded more 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 in degraded habitats or something that's driving down SVL. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Like you say, if it's predation, it'd be hard. But then again, yeah. If you, it'd be hard to get in predation data. But then again, it could all it could all potentially be thermoregulatory as well. Yeah. Very cool though. Yeah. Very cool that there so, is there is something going on here. It is really awesome to think that they're changing or. Mm, yeah, they are, well, they are. They are. They're, they're different well, in that, different environments. Yeah, that's, that's really the struck... conservation angle. There is is they're showing some level of adaptability in the face of deforestation, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And um, what I thought really struck me about this was that the secondary and degraded forests, the chameleons were very similar in those two. Those two kind of neatly lumped together. Yes. Um, in terms of the behaviour they produce, um, and to a less extent the morphology. So. It goes to show that secondary rainforest is very different to primary in terms of how the chameleons act and how the chameleons end up being. Um, so despite the fact that we as humans perceive secondary forest to be this like, you know, pretty good conservation alternative, we're doing our best basically with what we can mm. um, to some of the wildlife. It really is no match for the uh, primary rainforest. Primary's best usually is yeah <laughs> it's just hard to hard to maintain usually it has to be some sort of compromise i just love chapping <laughs> yeah well i gotta get more chairs don't i ah uh, yes <laughs> um yeah i mean i'm nice wooden desk i'm operating from here i think all, so i think all the stuff <laughs> i'm sitting on is all made from chipboard <laughs> uh, um yeah, so overall, a really nice paper and straightforward too about rapid adaptation, both morphological and behavioural. I was also going to suggest what would also be cool for future study is getting a weight measurement in alongside SVL. So you could do some sort mm. of proxy for uh, body condition and see if the degraded ones are as healthy as primary forest ones. Because while they might still be there, are they actually as healthy as primary forest ones? Are you are mm. you seeing a, a good, healthy, viable population still out there, or is it just the last dregs of the you know the outcast chameleons that no one liked and they got kicked out yeah. into the degraded forest? Yeah, I wonder if um, in the early stages of development, if they're feeding well, their tail will grow longer because that tail length being longer could actually in inadvertently be a measure of their fitness. Maybe, maybe. I mean. What's tail length linked to another species? Um, it's sexually dimorphic in snakes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I've ever seen that anywhere. I just thought. Mm. So second paper. Second paper. So this one's by Eckhard Kapler and Krauss, published in 2017 in Scientific Reports. Highly variable lifespan in an annual reptile, Lambord's chameleon. Fusifer Lambordi. 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 There's no M in it, Ben. What? Loon. Oh. Lambordi. Start again. Start again. <laughs> Fusifer Lambordi. So you could just chop that slip. We're still putting the M in it, you nutter. Fusifer Lambordi. Lambordi. Okay, right. Okay, I can see there's going to be a Lambordi. <laughs> La. How can I not say this? Labordi. There we go. Fusifer. There you go. Fusifer Labordi. Hey. <laughs> Jokes. Fusifer. Okay, Is there anything Labordi. unusual about their skeletons? <laughs> their skeletons are highly unusual because they're so small. No one's really been so able this... to investigate them because they haven't found a magnifying glass powerful enough to see them. Ah. Uh, wow. Thank you, Dr. Science. So, <laughs> I loved this paper from the get-go. The first line of this paper is, the fast-slow continuum is the dominant axis of life history variation in tetrapods. So deep. I think we could transplant that into sort of the way we think about our own lives in many ways. You think that these these tiny chameleons have a lot to teach us? I think they do. Living fast. Dying young. And dying young. Or living slow and... <laughs> Living for ages. I think it should be live fast, die young, or live slow, die slow. Live slow, die slow. Yeah. <laughs> live slow, die progressively. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> live slow and let senescence creep up on you. 
Yeah. So these are first for Labordi, Labord's chameleon. Labord's. What do you think of the name, Ben? Labord's is it named after Labord? Yeah. I'm not a big fan. No, me neither. I hate it. So, what do is... you know who Labord was? Um, I don't know. I hope there's some sort of prominent chameleon expert. Mate, not even. Oh. He is a long dead French adventurer and industrialist. So basically, he was one of the guys that came to Madagascar and first industrialised it. Nice. So on balance, I actually don't think the fauna of Madagascar owes him much thanks. Well, probably not these little chameleons at the very least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what does uh, Fursifer mean? I've no idea. Are you giggling? Um, yeah. The Latin for forked refers to the shape of the animal's feet. Wow. That's quite cool. That's really good. Oh, that's really cool. Forked feet. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Laborde's forked feet. So, um... Yeah, these Laborde's chameleons, they're a bit bigger than Brachysia, where Brachysia were 10 centimetres all told, including the tail. These guys are 10 centimetres snout to vent length, so the tail's a bit extra so on the end. So monsters. They're gargantuan beasts. <laughs> um, where are they from? They're from Madagascar. Um, and the males are kind of green with a dashed white line down the flanks, and... Uh, They've got quite a large rostral appendage, horn-looking thing. Um, the skin between their scales, the interstitial skin, is white. And um, that gives them this kind of cool appearance. They look a bit like lichen-covered. Um, whereas the females are slightly different. They've got... Uh, well, they're kind of green or black background with blue bands and orange spots along the tops. So they're actually quite a little bit more funky, the, the females. But they don't have the uh, rostral appendage that the males have. Um, and yeah, they're famous for being the shortest lived tetrapod at only four or five months. Meaning most of their life is as an egg. Yeah. They spend nine nine months as an egg. Nine, eight to nine months as an egg. I mean, that's just crazy, that isn't it? What is that about? What a life. Yeah. Yeah. So the this kind of prolonged or paused development is called diapause. And uh, just literally means life on pause. Life on and pause. So the, life as egg. Yeah, li uh, live in the egg life. <laughs> and these eggs, they don't develop or hatch until the weather warms up and the rainy season comes. But I think diapause is really cool because it's this neat adaptation for living in climates which are highly variable. Mm. So there's other chameleons that do it. Um, common chameleons, which are Camellia chameleon, and also Camellia calotratus, the veiled chameleons, which are one of the ones that are in the pet trade lot. Um, they also do it too. And with um, Spanish common chameleons, they lay eggs at the end of September and those eggs sit doing pretty much nothing until April and then they hatch in the following August. So the reason they start actually developing in April is because the weather starts to warm up. It's kind of like spring spring coming into summer and then they hatch in summer. And at that point, they've been eggs for 10 months. So actually even longer than Laborde's chameleons. Crazy. It's mad, isn't it? Crazy. And so, right, the game the game plan for this paper was to check, well, get the real details on their life history and lifespan and see if it varies over its, distri its distribution because it had previously been looked at somewhere else. Um, yeah, they looked at it in the uh, southern part yeah. of their range so this and now they're studying in the northern part, which is wetter and... Warmer. Exactly, and they also wanted to see if there was a difference between the sexes, whether males or females lived longer, or it was an entire population that had this tiny little life. Yeah. So this, um, so the area of Madagascar they're doing the study in is a dry, deciduous forest in the west. Mm. Um, it's low, low um, elevation. It's only like thirty, sixty meters above sea level, and. The reason for this kind of crazy life that they lead is that there's a really hot rainy season from November to March uh, with 900 millimetres annual precipitation, followed by a really cool dry season from April to October. Yeah, I presume all that seasonality comes from being right on the Mozambique... Uh, what do they call it? 
the sea between Mozambique and Madagascar is super shallow and in Mozambique Channel. It might be Mozambique Channel. Mm. Um, it is, yeah. It's yeah, so that. I guess there's a lot of humidity and heat and, and all sorts coming off that all the time if they're right on the coast. Cool. I guess. No, I think you're right. Yeah. That sounds like some proper geography there. Hmm. So, basically, it was a mark and recapture study. Going out there, yeah. finding chameleons, marking them, recapturing them later, so you can work out how long they've survived for, um, and growth rates, basically. Yeah, they did it for three years, didn't they? Yeah. Well, yes, three years. Mm-hmm. But not and, entire um, years. No, only the active seasons, because, yeah, there's no point just mark recapturing eggs, they don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Day five, eggs still have not moved. <laughs> team goes restless. Morale. <laughs> Morale in the team is at a cool season low. <laughs> Much like the eggs we're studying, our joy and happiness for life is on diapoles. <laughs> so yeah, they uh, they looked at these chameleons um, and what they found was that during an average rainy season in 2013 to 2014, the lifespan of the chameleons from hatching to dying was six to nine months, uh, which was actually longer compared to the report for the southern population, mm. which was kind of like, what, five months, four to five months? Because uh, the, the northern the northern populations in this study and the southern population all comes from the Carsten et al. 2008 study. Yes. Um, so what they found was that these northern populations lived longer and they also differed in several aspects of their life history with all stages of life being more extended in the northern population yeah they lived they lived slower they had more fun they did and so the hatchlings came out earlier uh, the juveniles grew more slowly so it was less of a kind of mad dash to adulthood yeah um, and some of the females actually um were gravid more than once, so they laid more than one clutch. So they're not strictly semilparous, which is where you have one mating event in your whole life. Lead up to that, mate, it's incredible, and then you die. <laughs> so some of them weren't like that. Some of them actually managed to survive through multiple uh, clutches. Yeah. Um, and also alongside their wild stuff, they did field enclosure studies where they had a few... Uh, captive males and females to see how long they would survive if there was no breeding occurring whatsoever. I thought that was really cool. And um, what did they have? They had a median survival time for females of 9.5 months and for males of 8.2 months, but maximums of 11.5 and 16 months. And also they had some that escaped. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they did have some that <laughs> There was a cyclone and they all got out. out. <laughs> they went out and mated and died. But, uh, yeah, so basically what it... it, it it turns out that the ravages of battle are pretty unkind to wild beasts. Mm. These males, if they're kept from fighting each other and they never see another living chameleon, they actually have a pretty chill time and live twice as long as they might ordinarily. Yeah. I mean, that, that must be a pretty intensive uh, sort of breeding, breeding competition then. Yeah, they found lots of them with scars on their heads and bodies, didn't they? So chameleons really go at it when they yeah, fight. It's, a, it's pretty intense. Another one of those, those Carsten papers, Carsten 2009, compares... It's another one of the, like, put a couple of reptiles in a, in a box and watch them battle um, studies, but this time for tiny chameleons. <laughs> and they compared these guys with first of her... First of Where is it? Varicosis, uh, which I think is spiny, spiny chameleon or lumpy chameleon. Varicosis, yeah, yeah, something like that. They look, um, and yeah. basically, our guys, um, Labords, were way more aggressive. Like <laughs> they were way more keen to fight. They were way more well up for a fight all the time. The first of us, nowhere near as much. And Wait, so the, the Labords were keen and the Varicosas just didn't want any part of it? Yeah, them. they didn't want to fight. They were fine. They they just sort of... They, they did sort of antagonize, antagonize each other. Male male antagonism did, did occur, but just not on the scale of Labords. Yeah. Man, some chameleons are mental. Like, um... What species was it? Uh, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine's got Bradipodium pumulum. 
as a pet, which is like a South African dwarf chameleon. And he's also got leaf chameleons. I think I think it was brachysia or something. And uh, put the brachysia on his finger and like held it up to the bradypodian. And the thing went crazy. <laughs> it just was like, like, you know, bouncing around, changing colour, puffing up, hissing, all sorts. Just going absolutely wild. The brachysia is just there like, what's happening? <laughs> some of them just... That's so on edge, right? Yeah, they're just so fiercely territorial. You think of chameleons as being really chill, but, you know, where you keep them in captivity like these guys did, you have to have walls so they can never see each other. Otherwise, they'll just, like, get so fired up the whole time. Yeah, they're nuts. Angry little beasts. Yeah, yeah it is crazy. So, yeah. Uh, they don't live long, these Labord's chameleons. Do you know, I found out that Parsons chameleon, which is the world's largest chameleon, so the opposite end of the spectrum to these, is another Madagascan one. Uh, they can live up to eight or nine years. And um, the way they counted how many years these chameleons, because they were getting the ages from museum specimens, mm. and what they were doing was they were taking the finger bones, cutting them down the... Well, they are basically cutting them perpendicular to their length. It took me a while. Perpendicular and, um, they, to their length. Okay. Yeah, you know what I yeah, mean, Yeah, right? yeah, no idea. Yeah, and uh, they were slicing them like that and looking at the cross sections, and what they Counting could look the at, much like much like tree rings. Yeah, oh they were looking gosh. at lines of arrested growth, which indicated sort of times where they had been growing less, and they were counting those, and then you could see the alternating kind of hot, warm, wet, dry periods. Yeah, yeah, and then so from that they could estimate how many years they'd been alive. That's pretty cool. Who knew that chameleons and trees? Are basically the same yeah. thing. That was from Tessa et al. 2017. That's really neat. Yeah, it's really cool. So, uh, yeah, these Labord's chameleons. Angry, small, little, fast-living critters that live less fast when they've got a little bit more time on their hands. Yeah, when the, when the rain and cold... When the seasonality is less extreme and they have a little bit more to play with, it does seem to slow down their uh, their life cycle, which is rather neat. Uh, I did hmm. want to make one quick mention that you know you were talking about the appendages on their nose. Yeah. They don't seem to use that for combat. Okay. Um, it seems to be, or at least in the literature, it seems to be the ones that have keratinized appendages use those for combat. And these, these sort of non-keratinized ones aren't and may be used for something else. Although it's not entirely clear what. Yeah, one of the theories is that it's used to um, for species recognition. Yeah. So you can tell who you're supposed to be mating with based on what they've got on their face. Would make sense. There's a lot of chameleons yeah. out there. But then chameleons yeah, have well, pretty decent eyes, don't they? Yeah, they do. They do. But then but they're again. colour's not going to help, so... Yeah, but you know how angry and crazy they can be? Yeah. If you mistake the wrong species and go up to it and try and mate with it oh. and it's the wrong kind, then you're gonna... you could be... You're going to get laid out. Yeah, you're going to get all smashed up. <laughs> yeah. It's not a mistake you'd make twice. Well, no, quite literally not if you're a Laborde comedian, because that's it, you're dead then. <laughs> that's it. You've lived your life and you made one mistake. That's it. <laughs> that's how you'll be remembered. Yeah, it's like playing a game on the hardest possible difficulty. <laughs> Back to the start. Start again. So, yeah. yeah. Bye. <laughs> so uh, before we move on to the third paper... Um, which obviously is a very special segment. Uh, Madagascar's dwarf chameleons are the brachysia ones. The first for Labordi that we were just discussing is kind of more of a tree chameleon. It's not like one of the leaf ground-dwelling chameleons that we were talking about prior. Um, Africa does, however, have its own version of brachysia. There's two genera, uh, Ramfolian and Repelion, and they basically fill the same role as Brachysia do in Madagascar, where they're kind of much more terrestrial, much smaller. Um, you know, they're not, they don't have the kind of flashy colours, generally speaking, um, the simplified morphology, you know, the less prehensile tails. Mm. Um, but what's cool about these Ramfolian, Rapolian, and Brachysia collectively is that um, they're not all related. They don't form like monophyletic groups. So, Ramfolian, Rapolian, and Brachysia have all evolved entirely separately Convergent to evolution. do very similar things exactly yeah they're all they've all convergently convergently evolved. so there's no yeah there's no like common ground dwelling ancestor that they all came from and um 
What's even cooler is that Repellium, one of the African ground-dwelling genera, they're actually a sister taxon of a tree genus called Archaeus, which is from the Seychelles Islands. So at some point, they've kind of rafted over and then evolved to be ground-dwelling independently. Yes, isn't that, um, that... I mean, isn't there sort of good evidence that chameleons originated on Madagascar and Seychelles and those sort of island areas as opposed to mainland Africa? Ah, oh, here we go. I've found it. I've found it. It's a Raxworthy et al. paper published in Nature in 2002. And uh, from the abstract, we we have Oceanic dispersal, not Gondwana breakup, facilitated species radiation, and the most parsimonious, bio- be- bleh, the most parsimonious biogeographical hypothesis supports a Madagascan origin for chameleons with multiple out-of-Madagascar dispersal events to Africa, the Seychelles, and the Comoros Archipelago, and possibly to Reunion Island. Cool. So, And then sa- and sailors took them to Europe. Yeah, the importance of... Basically, this paper is looking at the importance of ocean dispersal in the spread of chameleons, which is pretty neat. That's, that's 2002. I don't know if something newer has uh, countered Raxworthy et al.'s work, but that's what I remember. This is the paper that I remembered reading, and that's why I was saying Madagascan origin. Cool. So, um, so yeah, our Madagascar. Yeah, but the fact that these um, Repellion are related so closely to Archaeus is an indicator that there's shifts back and forth between chameleons evolving to be ground-dwelling and then back to tree-dwelling. And yes. um, there's, an, there's another example in um, Ramfolian spinosis. So these are like... Um, just some really cool spiky ramfolian that have a really, really long uh, rooster appendage. And they're arboreal, but they evolved from ground-dwelling species, as the name ramfolian suggests. Um, Hmm. And yeah, and what's cool about this species, which is what I wanted to mention, uh, all tree chameleons that have been studied have, obviously their feet are covered in scales, but between the scales are these tiny, tiny hairs called setae, and uh, that's what helps the chameleons grip onto trees. It's like an extra layer of grip. And um, while tree-dwelling, tree-dwelling chameleons have these, um, ground-dwelling chameleons have lost them. And instead of having those, they've actually got this kind of like, their scale is a big spine. And then around the edges of it, there's kind of this honeycomb arrangement of little tiny bumps and chunks, which are different between pretty much every chameleon that has been looked at that lives on the ground and what these do is these kind of act as a like really really high surface area surface so when they're kind of walking with their hands flat they can grip onto things like moss and they can actually walk directly on leaves and things like that and that's a paper by Rydal et al 2014 and the the images in that paper just absolutely blew my mind like of tiny little chameleon feet yeah, the, le- the 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 level of not only the level of um, like incredible detail in these structures, and it just makes you realise that on you know just a microscopic level they're gripping onto the surroundings, but also the variation between different ground dwelling chameleons, which mm. superficially you'd think led similar lives, they're all just like very very marginally different, and it's obviously adaptations for the different surfaces they walk on. Um, which I just thought was really, really, really cool. Yeah, that's really neat. It's not something you really think of for ground-dwelling reptiles that they need that much uh, variation in their foot structure because it's, oh, you're just on the ground. You're not going to fall off anything. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the evolution, pushing those pushing those boundaries. Yeah, it's just really cool as well because um, that Ramfolian spinosis, the one that's secondarily evolved to go back in the trees, has actually secondarily evolved the hair-like setae that characterises the tree-dwelling chameleons. That's cool. Yeah, so it's like back and forth, back and forth. Presuming, of course, our current, you know, trees are correct. Yeah, well, yeah, you do have to make some allowance for that, but it's just so cool to think that evolution just consistently keeps finding the same way to do things. Mm. It is, that's kind of been somewhat the theme of this episode, actually, because that was the whole point with the... uh, morphological and roosting variation as this idea of certain solutions for certain uh, types of habitat and species being able to uh, be shifted to make use of them on relatively short timescales too. Mm, well, either that will go extinct. <laughs> yes, but we don't talk about those animals. <laughs> Life finds a way, except when it doesn't. 
We should have called it Chameleon Park this episode after all this. Damn. Never mind. Hey, so uh, should we move on to the species of the bi-week? The species of the bi-week. Yeah. <gasps> this. What's the plural of species? Species. Speciesies. No, it's just species. <laughs> the speciesies of the bi-week. Speciesies. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, as the name suggests, we've got more than one species this week. There's actually four, isn't there? We're spoiled. Well, you have now. <gasps> uh, well, shall I introduce a paper? Yeah, let's go for it. Branch, Bayliss and Tolly, 2014, Pygmy Chameleons of the Ramfolium Platyceps Complex, Squamata Chameleonidae, description of four new species from isolated sky islands of northern Mozambique. Wow. Hmm. Pub- Nothing quite captures the imagination like Sky Islands. Wow, published in Zootax, importantly. <laughs> Before you get lost oh. in the the distant land of Sky Islands. <laughs> Sorry, as soon as I read Sky Islands, I was there, I was away. Floating <sighs> away. An yeah. island in the sky. Yeah, so we're journeying to northern Mozambique. On the southeast coast of Africa. Neighbouring the Indian Ocean, as we just mentioned. Separating Madagascar and Mozambique. But on mainland Africa, it's important to mention. So the Sky Islands are basically just mountains, really, aren't they? Well, I mean, don't completely ruin the mystery, Ben. Well, they're pretty much just like mountains. Things live on them. And they're somewhat isolated because they can't get from one to t'other because of lowland habitat that they're not particularly well adapted for. Yeah, exactly. So there's lots of um, mountain chains in Africa. You've got like Ethiopian Kenyan Highlands, um, Albertine Rift, etc, etc. And uh, yeah, like you say, they have a habit of hosting really cool endemic species because these islands in the sky, you know, they they can live there, but then the habitat in between is inhospitable. So they end up having really high levels of really cool endemism. Mm. And um, those montane ecosystems at the tops of these mountains and and down their sides are kind of characterised by really obvious altitudinal zonation, where different plants and animals exist at different altitudes as you go up. <clears throat> so I went to Mount Kenya for uh, when I was doing my masters, and uh, you go from like cultivated land, which is where all the people live, and then as you approach Mount Kenya, that starts to be kind of lower montane forest where there's like moss, loads of epiphytes. Um, really cool lush vegetation, like old growth trees. It's basically the same as um, lowland forest in places like the Congo. Mm. You keep climbing and then there's really thick bamboo forest, which goes on for quite a while. I didn't really like it. It was a bit boring in there because there wasn't any chameleon. <laughs> and then uh, after that, you get to the upper montane forest, which is like lower, really gnarly trees. And because there's less layering of the forest, you get like really strong layer of grass and herbs at the bottom. And you keep going up from that and you reach the ericaceous zone where there's just enormous heather absolutely everywhere. Uh, there, The cool thing about the ericaceous zone on Mount Kenya is there's a really neat little endemic chameleon called Troceros shubotsai, the Mount Kenya dwarf chameleon, which I did try and find, but unfortunately couldn't. Oh, it was really small. cold. Yeah, they're tiny, mate. They're absolutely tiny and they live in the heather and a lot of the heather had been burnt in the area we were in, so uh, I didn't know if... Probably left yeah, them, didn't, didn't they? Yeah, well, I don't know, like, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. But, um, yeah, and then beyond that, beyond the ericaceous zone where the heather lives, you kind of have the alpine zone, which gives way into snow. Alpine zone, we didn't get up to, it was too high. It's like, there's just sort of shrubs and little tussock grasses. Not really chameleon habitat. No. Well, you never say never, but probably not. But some of those chameleons can, you know, they can operate at ridiculously cold temperatures. There's chameleons that can hunt at like seven degrees Celsius. Mm. that's pretty um, impressive yeah. for, a, for a reptile isn't it it's is that, pretty it's stunning un- yeah it's, it's unbelievable uh, really effective thermal regulators I mean that's one of the reasons a lot of these species change colour to go dark is to warm themselves up in places which really they've got no right being <laughs> <laughs> the magic of chameleons yeah and um, yeah we're obviously going to Mozambique because um, as uh the authors of this paper mention while Kenyan mountains and other places have been really well studied Mozambique has kind of been left out in a lot of ways mm. so this kind of this study of the chameleons of the Mozambique sky islands was well timed and bam they found four or described four anyway 
They did indeed, yeah. Probably found more than four. Well, yeah, you'd hope they found more than four. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't just find four and bring them home. Four chameleons, and they're all different. (laughs) Yeah, well, should we we get into the species they discovered? Yeah. Yeah, let's just rattle them off. Yeah, do you want to go? You go first. Um, So the first one we have is Rampholeon Maspictus which is the Mount Mabu Pygmy Chameleon. Uh, And this guy is probably one of the prettier ones. He's a sort of nice emeraldy green, light emerald green. Uh, Has a bizarre yellow chin, a blue top of the head, like properly teal blue, and a couple of rather nice yellow stripes. And the female is... Same sort of cool green, same sort of cool bits of blue, but sort of browner and more drab on top, but has more distinct, darker stripes. Mm, yeah. Rather neat. And uh, she's got a kind of slightly smaller little rostral appendage. Yes. Kind of weird, actually. The front of their face looks like an actual human nose and mouth. <laughs> well, it freaks me out. I'm not sure about that. Oh, man. Freaks me out. <laughs> I find them a little bit uncanny valley, actually, these ones. I quite like them. They're fun. Name's good. Name's really good. Yes. Painted Man, which is referring to the wicked coloration of the males. And they apparently keep even when they're sleeping. That's cool to know, because most chameleons just turn kind of whitey green when they go to sleep. Well, it would make sense, because otherwise you get eaten by stuff, wouldn't you, if you were bright colours? You get picked off by nocturnal birds. I, I like the photos they use in this paper because they just, they've got them both on one branch and they look like they're kind of playing together. <laughs> Although, actually, if you look at their colours, they actually look like they're pretty upset by the situation. Yeah. Um, very nice, and then there's Very good. A habitat shot of their, this new chameleon, Ramphalian Maspictus, just hanging out by a waterfall. It, it almost looks like um, someone's holding the stick and pushing it into frame. Well, they had a oh, nice set up and they've just they've <laughs> this chameleon in. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> the chameleon's just gripping on for dear life. <laughs> Don't put me in the waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going in the alcohol. So oh, God. the second species they discovered was Ramphalian nebulocta, the Mount Chiperone pygmy chameleon. So this one's from a different mountain. And Again, such an excellent name. The nebula, which means cloud or mist, and octa, which means maker. So it's the cloud maker. <laughs> That's absolutely great. Because um, the apparently the chipperoni, which is the local name for the cold drizzle, which comes to the Shire Highlands of southern Malawi. So that's really cool. Yes, it gets the rains get created on the mountain that this uh, pygmy chameleon's found on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, um, yeah, yeah. So the mountain, the moist air gets forced up from the Indian Ocean, settles on the mountain, creates rain. The cloud maker. The cloud maker. Very strange looking guy. Well, yeah. I mean, they've only got a female pictured, so she's like. She's in a really weird pose as well. She's kind of like creeping about, looking at the camera <laughs> as if it's a predator. Yeah. And tiny, teeny little tail. Like someone, it almost looks like the tail has been pulled off the chameleon. And all yeah. that's left is this golden, like, substructure. <laughs> really yeah, it's really, it's really strange. The, the, the chameleon, she looks like she's covered in loads of tiny little jewels, though. Mm. Little emerald green and then brown across the flanks. To be honest, it's difficult to know what this chameleon would actually and look a like. a bit of blue on the other side. Yeah, it looks pretty pissed off to me. Well, but with such a stylish tail. Yeah, yeah. If a little disturbingly small. Yeah, weirdly, weirdly small. How small is this chameleon? It's like snout vent length, 44... 44 watt... 44 what? Okay, well, there's no units on that table, so that... 44 millimetres. The chameleon is 44 long. It's 44 <laughs> units. No, it's millimetres. It's millimetres. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it say that. It says in the oh, size it does bit, say that. it's okay. 
It does. It does. It's my bad. Yeah. So 44 millimetres. That's tiny. That's tiny. That's absolutely tiny. It's four centimetres long. Well, maybe it was a little one. That's crazy. Maybe they get massive. Mate, have you got a ruler handy? Four centimetres is like nothing. That's like a thumb. It's not even a thumb. It's a very small thumb. Yeah. It's an oddly small thumb. Disturbingly small thumb. So that tail, yeah. we're saying that's a small tail. That's a tiny tail. Yeah, that's a joke of a tail. It's like a... <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the bales get massive. That's what I'm saying. Maybe they're, maybe they're huge. Sorry, Ben. Are we boring you? <laughs> no. Maybe the the males maybe... are smaller. The males are smaller. One of the other types is a male, and it's smaller. But it could be a, it could be a subadult. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just a baby. We'll get massive. But it's got the same length tail as a female, an adult female. In fact, it's got a longer tail than most of the adult females, which would suggest to me it wasn't adult. They're just weird. They are. Maybe weird. They, their tail grows first. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Like snakes. Yeah. And they mm. grow into it. Hmm, yeah, could be. <laughs> Pretty sure you're right about that. Right, <laughs> species three. Um, Ramphilion Tilbury. 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 Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, the Mount Namuli Pygmy Chameleon. Which was named after Dr. Colin Tilbury, because he did lots mm. of stuff on chameleons, and wrote the big book on chameleons. Bit of a legend. I've actually seen a copy of that book, and it is blindingly awesome. Yeah. But they're like a thousand pounds now. They're out of print. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Get an interlibrary yeah. loan and then steal it. Yeah, well... I don't think anyone would lend me it. I've got a bad rep. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't know if there's a copy about anywhere. Oh, yeah, no, inter- interlibrary loans awesome. will get, get, get them to you from the British Library. It'll be fine. Just scan it. Yeah, just, I did take just a few pages the of the one I borrowed, but I was using it. Yeah. Really cool book. One of the best books. Uh, but a pretty bland chameleon, actually. Yeah, they're quite. they're quite bland. They're quite sort of light beige with a couple of stripes on them um the male is that the male male on the left yeah has a funny bit of orange on its nose yeah but also bear in mind that these photos were taken at night so during the day they might be more spectacular well i can tell you when they're dead they just look brown when they're dead they look like a bogey (laughs) poor little guy (laughs) yeah there's pictures of dead ones. Um, but yeah, you know, cool cool, cool little new species, another uh, likely endemic. And then the fourth one. The fourth one is Ramfolian Bressoorum, named for the Brothers Bresso. It's called the Mount Inigo Pygmy Chameleon. And this one's got attitude. I like this, this one. This one might be my favourite of the bunch. Yeah, and... A deep burnt orange, f- funny yellow lips. Yeah, yeah, and kind of spiky appearance as well. Yeah. Really different between the male and the female. The male's much deeper. And taller. Sorry, no, that's the female. The female's much deeper and taller. The male's yes. on the bottom. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. But, uh, mate, how nice does that habitat shot look? It literally just looks like the opening scene of The Lion King. <laughs> but with tiny chameleons running about. You yeah, don't see those in The really Lion King. Cool. No. They were glossed over. And this is another tiny one. The snout went to length, length is only 39 millimetres. Tiny. Incredible. They're literally, absolutely tiny. Yeah. Well, that's our four species, I think. Yeah, that's the four. Four new species of dwarf chameleon. Yeah. And tentative conservation um, status for all three, all four of them. Possibly threatened. Because of their yeah, limited well, uh, distributions, restricted to these like individual sky islands. Uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Probably quite small populations and restricted distributions. Yeah. Yeah, all it would take is one fire or... I don't know, one very disciplined and militant chameleon slaughterer. Yeah, or someone who just wanted a nice pet. Mm, Yep. 
Yeah. Having said that, though, when they're this restricted, it does beg the question, like, would it be good to just put a couple in the bank? In the chameleon bank? Yeah. Do we have a chameleon bank? Not a formal one, as far as I'm aware Mm, of. So that's a no. 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 Yeah, I probably would have heard of it. But yeah, like you say, they're likely to be threatened, you know, habitat destruction, degradation, Mm. people cutting out timber, small-scale agriculture, obviously people have got to eat. So yeah, tough. But nevertheless, four really cool little species of chameleon, it just goes to show the level of endemism that's found. Every hill you go to, you pretty much find a new chameleon. Yes. So people need to go to the other hills that no one's gone to yet. Yeah. And find those chameleons. Yeah. Well, summer holiday, Ben. Oh, all right. Actually, I'm going. winter holiday. Winter holiday better for me, actually. What? Next week? Well, if anyone wants to donate, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll name it after you. No, we won't. No, we won't. <laughs> There's no way we'd do that. We're not naming it after nobody. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's our species of bi week. That rounds up our episode on... Uh, Teeny, teeny, tiny, mini chameleons. Miniature chameleons. Yeah. Um, we did have something from Scott. Oh, yeah. So the species of um, file snake, which is marine, is Acrocordus granulatus. Granulatus. What was I saying? Javan. Javaniscus. Javan... Javanicus? Javanicus. I can't remember what That's what what I, I was saying Javanicus. Yes. Wow, cool. That's a really cool looking little snake. It's called the marine file snake. They're kind of weird looking though, aren't they? Mate, they are so cute though. <laughs> Look at its baggy skin. One day, one day I'll see one. Looks like a suitcase that's been left out in the rain. <laughs> that's how I want my snakes looking. <laughs> really? Oh, they're wicked. Well, yeah, thank you, Scott. Oh, they're so bizarre. Yeah, they are. And actually, Scott said apparently there's a couple of papers about them too, so we should maybe think about doing that. Yeah, an no, I've, re- I've read a couple of papers about them, and they're not as interesting as the other papers we usually do. It's not that they don't exist, oh. it's just there wasn't. Nothing grabbed my eye. Yeah, fair. I mean, they're, you know, they're fine papers. Well, there's a couple. I just feel like there's other stuff to prioritise, that's all. Yeah, there's nothing new since 2014 anyway that I can find. Yeah. Scott did say there's nothing new particularly. Yeah. I think that's why I, uh, that's why I poo-pooed them to begin with. Fair. Well, if someone would be so kind as to publish something really exciting and interesting about Acrocordus Cangulatus, <laughs> we'll do an episode on it. <laughs> uh, one day. <clears throat> yeah. Right, so... um. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is that there's a new issue of I Hurt Magazine that everyone should go and read yes, virtually imme- as immediately as they can. Number four. Yep, numero cuatro. And um, it's got a rather stunning-looking monitor lizard on the cover. It does, yeah, Emerald Tree Monitor. Mm. Banging-looking little critter. Um, and they've updated their website too, so it's like super slick now as well. It was always good, but now it's like, pow. Yeah, I hadn't actually, but this is the first time I've just popped onto their website now. Um, yeah. And it is. It is very nice. Yeah, so well worth Stunning read, images. reptile fans. Free magazine. I mean, really, you can't get much better than that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Anything else? Anything else? Um, apologies for the more traffic noise this episode. Uh, it's just where I'm recording. Sorry about that. Otherwise... No, I think uh, there's nothing nothing crazy happening on my end. No? No, not really. No cool papers to point out that are independent of what we've discussed, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I do have one what... sitting in front of me, a view of the global conservation job market and how to succeed in it, but I haven't read it yet, so I don't know how good it is. What, the global conservation job market? Um, both that and the paper. It's bad. <laughs> the papers in conservation biology Lucas et al if you want to go find it and read it it came out September last year cool uh, sweet so 
Yeah, I didn't do any stupid social media stuff, so I think that pretty much wraps it up. <laughs> you got no shout-outs. <laughs> no, no shout-outs this week. Um, like, as always, though, if you want to ask us a question or if you've got some corrections for us, because Miniature Chameleons was a bit of a blind alley for us. So, well, at least you've studied yeah. chameleons before. Yeah, but only tree ones. Yeah, but that's better than what I've done. Mm, I've hardly even true. seen a chameleon. You've seen a chameleon. Name one time that I've seen a chameleon. Uh, have you never seen a wild chameleon? I've never seen a wild chameleon. No, I have actually. Yeah, I've seen two different. You've been to Madagascar. I've seen two different nutter. species of wild about? chameleon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In fact, yeah. one of the ones we discussed actually. I saw Furcifer varicosis. Ah, oh, cool. Right, so yeah, any corrections, let us know. If you want to get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com, facebook.com slash herphighlights, uh, at herphighlights on Twitter. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Excellent. Thank you for listening. I'm going to put a jumper on Ben because I'm a bit chilly. Ineffective thermoregulation. <laughs>